0: This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. We're here on Material Is Your Business on Mouth Media Network. So how does someone with no background in fashion, no background in business, suddenly start a fashion business? And one that is really meaningful and successful to some of the biggest and best tastemakers in the world. Well, if you want to know more, this is the episode for you. We're here with Elizabeth Gillette, the creative director and founder of Elizabeth Gillette, which is focused really on soft accessories, scarves and kimonos. And the show starts right now.
1: I'm Elizabeth Gillette. I'm a designer in New York City, and I love materials because one item, a scarf, can transform your mood, your appearance, and provide a lot of color and uplift everything. And that's why I love materials.
2: From New York City, this is Material Is Your Business, a podcast covering the science, technology, and business of materials and manufacturing. Your hosts for this episode are Samantha Cortez, international consultant and founder of Samantha's Platform, and Stephanie Benedetto, CEO and co-founder of Queen of Raw. And now... Here are your hosts. Welcome,
0: everyone. I'm Stephanie Benedetto, and I'm joined by my co-host, Samantha Cortez. Hola. And our fantastic guest today is Elizabeth Gillette. She's the creative director and founder of Elizabeth Gillette, a New York City studio focused on those beautiful soft accessories and has really become an expert in surface design and embellishments. So, Elizabeth, in the first segment first, welcome...
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: We're excited to have you and just kind of wanted to understand this a little bit more. You have no background in fashion, no background in business, and yet you're running a really successful women-run, self-financed fashion business. How does that happen?
1: Well, I started my business when I lost a scarf and I designed my own version, first going to the Garmin Center, sourcing materials from jobbers. And finding some really old velvet that was quite mildewy, but at a great price. So I bought a few yards, took it back to my studio on the Upper East Side, dyed it, overdyed it in the bathtub, and made my first scarf. I had just bought my first sewing machine for my birthday. I cut and sewed it up, I wore it that night. And I got compliments, not only compliments, but I had people asking me, tapping me on the shoulder, asking, where can I buy that? And I thought, oh, my God, it still gives me goosebumps. Thinking about it, I thought, I thought myself that maybe I could find a retailer that would want to carry this. But when I got the public asking me complete strangers, I thought I am on to something. Because when I made my scarf, the reason I made it is I couldn't find one at any retailer in Manhattan. Saks, Barney's, the Whitney Museum store didn't have what I was looking for, which was an over-dyed, super soft, super tactile, incredibly appealing and comforting and beautiful piece of fabric that I could tie around my neck. And so I took a sample. I duplicated it again in the bathtub, drying it down at the wash and fold below my apartment, you know, a public wash and fold, discreetly drying it in their dryer.
0: <laughs>
1: and then I made a few extra samples. I dropped those samples off with an earnest note to two buyers in Manhattan, the Whitney Museum store and the Barney's department store on 7th Avenue in Chelsea, the original one. And within a day, day and a half, I had orders from both retailers. Thanks. And that was just like so surprising. I couldn't believe it. And that my brother who worked at American Express helped me find sewers in Queens where we could have things sewn. I used a cutter in the garment center and I over dyed velvet myself in the bathtub and transitioned my business one scarf at a time until I could move to the garment Center and really begin to do more extensive types of surface design.
0: That's an incredible story. And I know it resonates with a lot of people, especially because you're so afraid, you know, you want to put your product out there, but afraid what happens once the orders do come in and am I, am I going to be overwhelmed and know where to go or what to do? And we always, you know, think about it. That should be the worst problem is that you have too many orders and too many buyers coming at you, but you just did it and put it, put it out there. And we are lucky enough to be wearing the most beautiful scarves that you brought us as gifts. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about the scarves we're wearing
1: yes yeah, so stephanie's wearing a black and white 100 percent silk table printed via silk screen uh graphic neckerchief that can be worn a few different ways and that one has a regular hem and it's made by hand and we made 25 pieces of that style and it retails for 50 dollars and it's made by hand in India. The original artwork is designed by hand on paper using watercolor and pen and ink. And then the production is done by craftsmen in India, generations of craft that has been passed down from family member to family member. And that enables me to do small additions on really beautiful fabrics so that I can sell original artwork at a low minimum, at a low retail cost, that's really high quality, high touch, feels great, and is not something that you're going to see at a mass merchant. And it doesn't look that way either. Like it isn't and it doesn't look mass produced.
0: It's gorgeous. I always wear black and I know I need some embellishments and this is just perfect. So thank you.
1: And that's the thing about Soft accessories is that it is an item that anyone, even someone like my husband, who doesn't necessarily know that much about fashion, it's an easy thing to bring to someone that you may not know well, or someone that you know very well. Like I picked out your scarf by looking by googling you and saying, Oh, wow, she wears a lot of black. And I see (laughs) that she has a graphic necklace. So it's like you just kind of fill in the blank and voila. And that's a really satisfying part of being in the business when you get to see an item that was originally an idea in my mind. And now it's being worn by someone. It's like, it's so exciting.
3: Elizabeth, I know you for many, many years. We used to share the building. Um, and the reason that I called you to come over here and i i just, I'm so impressed, not only because you had no background in the industry when you came in, but your, your technical knowledge onto, like a, getting a grasp and just embracing the knowledge of, of, of the different type of textiles and processes
1: to make something. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. So in the beginning, I designed the text, the surface design myself. So, I would have an idea and I applied it directly onto the fabric, so that for me allowed me to do things in New York in a small scale. Then, I transitioned to design artwork by hand and find printers that could print the the original artwork onto fabric in the beginning, I worked with a French mill. That designed on silk chiffon. That was the easiest thing for me to do with the lowest minimum. Very, very expensive, but that's that taught me a lot because I learned how to how to imagine. Like if it's on paper, it still looks different when it's printed. You, you know? do,
3: but you do not only. I mean, I know you have your fine fine art background, and but you do also embroidery, and you've done knitting,
1: hand knits. And it, it just can you explain a little to yeah. us the, 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 the different... So I was trained as a fine artist, and as a fine artist, I'm exposed to a, a, a toolbox that's infinite. You can use crushed paper. You can sculpt. You can um, do linoleum prints, screen printing. You can work with upcycled materials. Everything is game. So when I work with textiles... I like that it's a two-dimensional plane in which I am exploring, and I like the limits of that. And yet, there's so many possibilities because the fabrication that you print on changes the original artwork significantly. So it's it's you have to be open to that process in the same way that an artist is going to say... I'm not really sure where this is headed, but this is my inspiration. Here's my sketch. Let's see what happens. So when I release my artwork to an artisan in India, I have an idea of how it's going to come out, but I learn and I gained expertise by doing it and learning and reflecting and having dialogue and going to India and learning and processing in the same way that I began my business by getting that first order and saying, I'm going to move forward. It's like you just keep moving forward and experimenting. Um, with knitting, that was a very different game. So I have a visual art, printmaking, art background, painting, and printmaking. And to go into knitting, I needed help, I had to hire experts that could work with me side by side so that I could articulate what I was thinking. And that was a different process. It's getting swatches and, you know, it's, it's a different type of process than, um, it's less direct.
0: So starting where you started as a New York city business, dyeing this by hand in your, in your bathtub And now obviously working in other locations in in India. Why India? What did the artisans there have to offer and add to the business?
1: Okay, so first of all, I just had an emotional connection with some of the individuals that I met by chance, like so much of why I'm in business and who I'm working with and my customers, the designs, it's a lot of it is by just an opportunity that presents itself. So I bonded with the individuals that I happened to meet. And I liked, I liked the human connection. I liked the commitment to working with historic processes. And I like the possibility of what could happen if I tried to work with what I saw. If you go to visit a factory, you'll see other techniques like hand, hand weaving, I had never thought of like that type of design. Like how do you design a hand loom until I went to India and I saw that possibility. So it's being open to, it's a dialogue. It's a dialogue with my makers. So a, I bonded with the, with the, I had an emotional connection with the community. B there's incredible skill and a rich history of technique and capability. Um, see the, the logistics are make it possible for me to stay in business and to be competitive. How is that? Well, the low minimums, the beautiful fabrications, the quality.
0: Yeah, it's stuff you, you don't always get and see, and obviously an advantage of working around the world with different artisans and communities. So what does that process look like from ideation putting pen to paper drawing these beautiful prints to actually then knowing how they should be applied on what fibers and printed using what dyeing techniques
1: so the the easiest is to identify the best fabrications for for a variety of reasons and that's where it gets rather technical and dry it's like what tolerates all the weather changes in India, because there's, there's, there's monsoon season. And so you've got lots of givens that make certain textiles more viable. There's a cost factor, there's a consistency, there's shelf life, there's um, the history, like what fabrications have historically performed well, for my, for my category, and that changes there's also specifications, um, weight and drape and how wide can I go? Like if I want to do an oversized square that's on trend, you know, what's possible? What machines are available? It's so, that's where it gets really technical because I'll fall in love with like 100% cashmere um, tissue weight. And I I can't do that for many of my customers. It's too expensive. It's $365 retail for the size I want. So I worked backwards and I said, well, how can I get that look? But at, at the price I need, which is to retail around a hundred, what, what else can I use to execute a super airy, very translucent kind of look? And then I engineered fabric backwards. So finding the right yarn and, the, um, so it's, it works both ways, but um now it's like second nature because i've been doing it so long so i i think in the finished product in a way you know do you think it's, it's like, easier when you
3: do go to india and take a look at the factories yeah. and understand what they do and what their potential
1: is yes versus to see because um to to see how to make it easier to, to understand how to make it easier for my partners that I'm working with, because maybe um it's it's going there helps, but also looking at the the timeline, like where have we stumbled? What's difficult? Like certain colors are difficult, certain times of the year are difficult. And if you go there and you see like, oh my God, no one's showing up for work, it's Ramadan, or oh my goodness, it's so hot. People aren't, you know, you can just feel that the, the the weight of like people not being motivated or um, there's you, you, you absorb information that you would not have gotten any other way. And that's, you know, you want to make it easier and more fun.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And what have been some of the best go-to fibers and dyeing colors and techniques that either you use as a staple for your tastemakers that you see on trend now or that you know are good
1: go-tos? That's that do- a really good question. So it changes. So right now we are doing really well with 100% micro modal. And a lot of people think of modal as maybe like um, a knit. Maybe they bought something from Lululemon or something that's a knit um, T-shirt or something. A woven micro-modal is a completely different animal. It's very lightweight. It's very sheer. It's very soft. It has like a cottony kind of feel. And it's literally like air. So that's my favorite fabric. It's dry. It's a little bit... um, it's just it's beautiful. Do
3: they hand weave that or they or they machine weave it? Over? There's
1: two different ways to do it. The one that I'm using right now is machine woven. And it's super fine and um the mill that I do the most work with is vertical so they weave and they print and they finish and they stitch all in one location. That's in India? Yeah. And that's an incredible um so that's that's trending. Um, the other thing that's trending for us right now is the weight of silk that you're wearing, which is a super lightweight silk. It's It's so light and nice to feel. Yeah. So that's, that just, that's like a trend item right now. And those are the main things. And then I did a linen one. That's what Samantha's wearing and linen's great for the summer. Mm -hmm. Um, for example, you can spritz it with water and it will cool you down. So it has wicking capabilities.
0: Oh, hot oh, New York City. We need that this summer. Make some room
2: because it's snack time.
0: Uh, that's a good time to have some delicious snacks that you brought. We don't want the ice cream to melt. Can you tell us a little bit of the delicious food you brought
1: us? Yeah, so I'm a baker, but I didn't have time to bake. So I, But I wanted to recreate that. So I brought something that a friend of mine introduced, which is chocolate babka. And it's really delicious. You can have it any time of day. I got it from Whole Foods. Um, And then I also brought a non-dairy ice cream called Nada Moo. And that, (laughs) a friend of mine also introduced me to that. So um, I got mint chocolate chip. So it's like a good combination. You know, in the afternoon when you get a little dip, an energy, you know, you need to have a little snack like this around or have somebody bring it to you so i'm really curious to see what you think of this of my um my idea for an afternoon uplift
0: awesome afternoon (laughs) uplift time we're gonna take a break eat this food and then back soon on material is your business
3: Greetings, Mouth Media Network listener. My name is Davin Riley, and I'm willing to bet you like music. And even if my assumption is wrong, I still think you should come and check out our show, The Music Lover Podcast, where we sit down with entrepreneurs, pioneers, artists, and the unsung heroes of the music industry. Together, we'll uncover the insider perspectives on some of your favorite companies and artists as we analyze music business trends through a technological lens. Find us at the Music Lover Podcast. But remember, that's Music Lover without the vowels. MSCLVR. Yes, we're that cool. And since you're cool too, we should be friends. The Music Lover Podcast. We'll see you there.
0: material is your business we're here with elizabeth gillette the creative director and founder of elizabeth gillette and during the break while we're eating this incredible babka and non-dairy ice cream which is quite honestly the best i've ever had of non-dairy ice cream you wouldn't even know that it's not doesn't have any dairy in it um we had this amazing conversation that we really thought should be on mic. And so can we go back into it now talking a little bit about where you were with your studio years ago and work you did in China and how you transitioned and moved it to India and why?
1: So in the beginning, I transitioned from doing things in my bathtub to moving to the Garmin Center, hiring a team of people to help me produce things domestically. Then I transitioned some of that to China I was doing very large quantity and I was working primarily in knit and crochet, which is an excellent type of manufacturing to do in India. I mean, in China. And I was doing a lot of knit and crochet in uh, China because that's a good country for doing that type of manufacturing. Um, And I was running my New York-based manufacturing simultaneously and trying to design and deal with running a business. And I could not manage all those aspects successfully. I wasn't enjoying the business as much. It was really stressful. Samantha was my neighbor. She can attest to that stress level. So I had to transition from that type of operation. I had about 3,800 square feet of space, lots of sewing machines, cutting tables, that whole operation. Anyone that does manufacturing could picture what I'm talking about. And that was my family, you know, in the business, but I had to I had to shift away from that. Now I have a team of 4 people plus a freelancer and myself and we do everything. All everything is designed in New York and then we produce exclusively 99% is done in, in um, India with a little bit in Asia, a little bit in New York. And the reason I shifted to that is that I wanted to be able to do smaller quantity. I wanted to focus on one personality, one country, one kind of personality in terms of a country, which takes expertise. You know, the communication style is really distinctive to India versus China. It's different personality skill set of communicating, expectations. To understand all that, I needed mental space to be able to concentrate and hear what was really happening, not what I was being told.
3: Well we also had the retail (laughs) pressures.
1: Yeah, in
3: that did not that is a all. really good
1: point. So in the beginning, um there were there was more domestically produced goods. So if I was producing in China and doing fifteen hundred pieces of a style or two thousand pieces of a style, which was a small order for China at the time, I was beating the pants off of some of my competitors because people were still doing everything in New York. And I split my production so I could do some lower cost things and some higher price things in New York. And that model worked for a while, for a long while, maybe half a decade or a whole decade. And then I had to shift and I had to shift quickly. In the process, I lost quite a bit of money while I was transitioning because you can't turn on a dime and basically what happened is now i have very large customers and very small customers people that buy one of a style of a color and then people that might buy 1500 units of a style of a color and i need a way to be able to satisfy both ends of the spectrum
3: Are and you people ask me those fabulous sample sales sorry yes we do sample sales <laughs>
1: so behind every fashion line is a boatload of samples, because to get a 100-piece collection, you probably design 200 pieces. They do not go to waste.
0: love that. There is no
1: waste. (laughs) They are, the, the styles that we don't go into production on, I save, I archive them, maybe use them for another season, or you might be one of the lucky recipients of one if you come to one of our sample sales.
0: So it sounds like you really, with your business in response to different economic political social circumstances were able to shift to iterate and in some way and in many ways to grow from that experience and if, with everything you're doing um, obviously, being handcrafted and working with things like micro micromodal and doing limited edition adds an extreme beautiful value to it, and it also has a wonderful sustainable benefit. And with this minimal waste, which is near and dear to my heart as well, how much does kind of the sustainability play into it now, and kind of where you see the future of, of industries, not just fashion but across industries going?
1: So I think the the idea of using materials that aren't that are lower impact, so doing not doing polyester and. Doing- doing fibers that are easy to knit, to weave, and easy to print on. And um, we, we produce to order. We're not um, warehousing a bunch of goods that gets liquidated and turned into um, waste or landfill. It's every time I get an order or I want to place an order, I produce, I weave the goods, I print the goods, and then I own them and I sell them. So there's, um, that's called doing a package where you, you know, you produce to order rather than having a lot of excess material that might be overprinted and then not utilized. So in that way, it is efficient and waste free. The other point is I have two parts of my business. I have a boutique part, which is what the pieces you're wearing, which is the the styles that I do between 12 and 25, maybe 50 units of, that is my lab, that's like my test. That's sort of my, my testing ground where I sell those pieces to boutiques and specialty stores. Then I have the large customers that come to me for private label, so they might need soft accessories to be developed for them. And those, I typically will work on ideas... I've already tested. So in that way, there's not going to be a waste because those items have already been tested. They sold through. I believe in them. I know what I'm doing. I have 25 years of experience. So those pre-tested concepts that I later tweak for my bulk customer are going to fly out of the store and make a lot of people happy. So it's by doing these little sort of studio art kind of experiments, I have fun. I have something that's kind of interesting for people to look at if they're just exploring my brand. And I eliminate all that that stuff that you see on the sale rack if you go to a big department store and you're like, wow, that was a really dumb style. When you see like, <laughs> you know, 25 pairs of something. yes. Yeah. So I like that part of the business where I get to experiment with kind of a low risk. Absolutely. And collect
0: that kind of valuable feedback. Yeah. As you're doing these testings and and iterations, have you found that there have been any technologies or tools that have been really useful to what you do? And That's
1: a really great question. So in the beginning, I had to send my original drawings and paintings, courier them, to the mill (laughs) to print, you know, and then my painting was gone, you know, it would probably have like curry stains on it after it was (laughs) copied. And now we can send artwork and concepts and revisions and CADs directly electronically. And that's a beautiful thing. In the beginning, I had to print lookbooks. A lookbook is like a catalog. And you print those and only people that got a hold of my printed catalog could see my line. Now you can discover the line on Instagram or on Facebook, or I have a wholesale only access website where my, my retailers can go. I hardly ever use business cards. I print very little. So in that respect, that technology, which is, you know, for anyone younger than myself, it's, it's a given, you know, they grew up, only with, with um, screen-based information, so um, but that's that hasn't always been that case. Uh, the other thing is digital printing, which um, has really advanced since I started my business, and it's become much more cost-effective. So factories that I've been working with for a long time were able to purchase German machines, maybe secondhand, and learn the craft of doing that. So um, with digital printing, it enables... A um, artwork, a full-color watercolor painting with infinite color and shade to be executed. Not so easily, but it's technically possible. So you can get full-color spectrum and translate that onto fabric. There is a lot of technical skill that goes into executing that.
3: And the weaving of fabrics. How how you said that you went to the to the mills.
1: How do you find that? I love well, it. <laughs> in the beginning, it was mainly um, hand looms done, or like hand machine. So it was a very different way than like a large, um, very large scale machine weaving, where there's rooms filled with equipment. So the disadvantage is that the minimums for um, certain types of fabric are it's not possible for a small brand like myself to work with certain types of fabric because the minimums to weave are so high. But if you're doing a um,
3: in-ground goods and then printing on top, would it be a little bit more easier? Yes. Just curious.
1: Yeah. So the, my my biggest Partner factory is the one that weaves and prints and does everything in-house. But there are many other textiles that I would like to use that I don't use because I can't I don't have access to them. I don't have easy access because of the minimums to weave. That's one
3: of the things I I, I strongly believe that we can bring back manufacturing because if we bring things back in the great good stage, and then we could that we already have printing embroideries and, and samples, you know, prototyping very nailed down that it's easy to bring back that manufacturing because we can purchase gray goods. Yes. In quantities. Yes. And then-
1: gray goods have a lifespan. That's the only tricky part. And it's oh. affected by humidity and other environmental factors. And if you print something in September and then you use the same goods six months later, using the same dye formulas, it's going to look different. And the the stability of the fabric may change, so it Mm -hmm. gets tricky. But for certain types of applications and textiles that are not used for scarves, scarf textiles are very different than apparel. They're very light, they're very delicate, and they're not as shelf-stable. But I agree with you, like weaving a quantity of fabric and having it available as a platform for a variety of domestically executed embellishments be it embroidery or screen printing or digital printing is a great way to go
0: And as we're looking kind of at all of these shifts and changes in technology and across industries, we know that we're seeing this move also for kind of on demand, see now, buy now, you know, limited edition all the way to custom. Is that something that you see affecting your business and the industry at large? And where do you think it's going to go?
1: Yeah, so the shrinking of the timeline from when an individual wants to buy something to when it's available, has been compressed dramatically. So I think it starts with a consumer being able to buy now on Instagram and expecting to be able to purchase something immediately after seeing it. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is retailers are taking lower risk by waiting longer and placing orders with a shorter lead time. I think there's a lot of hesit- hesitancy in the market. I've seen that where buyers don't want to plan as far out as is required for my timeline, my my comfortable timeline. And you've got retailers like Zara moving production capability to a boat at a destination close to the port, which ships direct to store. And in that way, they've shrunk their timeline for a brand like mine I have to figure out clever ways to be able to shrink the timeline so that's where shrinking the number of fabrications that I use so that I can I can at least have the yarn ready I can have some of my some of my s- production is like simpler and ready to go so that I can shrink my timeline but it's, that's a really difficult part of the process. My typical timeline is 12 weeks. That's three months. That's a long time. That's a whole season. So if a retailer wants to buy something to test it and see if their customer likes it and then get more if their customer likes it, in other words, reorder, that, that my timeline doesn't work unless I shrink it to what retailers are asking for, which is six weeks. And I've been able to do some of that, but it's, it's stressful. Yeah, the, it's, su-
0: the supply chain and all the steps involved and the globalization and the demand to, to speed to market, it, it really has shifted and changed dramatically. And yeah. It is interesting to see kind of new businesses, new technologies that are popping up to help support and empower creatives such as yourself and what you're doing and what yeah. you're creating.
1: I think that retailers selling direct to consumer can also be a way. Like we produce the boutique line without any retail orders. I just go ahead and produce it and own it and sell it. So that can be a way, you know, where the... the that brings me the to the next question. Are you yes. online? Yes. Can they buy
3: online? Yes. You? I have a
1: small um, e-commerce store called elizabethgillette.com. Mm-hmm. And that's G-I-L-L-E-T-T. And that's where my homepage is, where you can find videos on how to style. And you can also shop. And we do free shipping. <laughs> I
0: really want to touch on before we go into the final segment, the powerful fact you are a female owned business, you had zero financing to do this, you bootstrapped it yourself with no fashion background. You know, we started out with this, this idea, and obviously, it's been so successful for you. Are there any kind of best practices that you've learned going through that tool something you wish you could look back and and tell yourself years ago as you go through that or for anyone else looking to do that
1: well I think you have to spend a portion of your time doing analytics that's such a good question like reflecting um what's working what's not working and then it's like it's very simple you know I think um it's it's really really simple. You just have to not get caught up in what what you in distractions basically. So in the beginning I kept my my collection very narrow and when something was really a pain in the ass to produce, then I didn't do it anymore. You know, even if a retailer was saying, "I want that sculpted rose 100% silk organza wrap." And I, you know, I said it's going to cost twice as much as what I did before. And the lead time is X, and you know, I, 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 the bottom line is there were things that I was making that were difficult to make. They had a lot of risk, and I wasn't making money on them, and I didn't enjoy it. So, I, t- I took that out. But I got that insight by stepping back. And when my line got too big, and I had all those individuals working for me, and it was really stressful, I stepped back and I said, "It's not working." So, and. In-
3: did you find any discrimination? Because you started a long time ago, like with me. Did you end up finding any
1: discrimination at that time when you started your business? And how difficult That's was That's a really it? good question. So um, I think to get money, to get a line of credit, that was the most difficult part of the business. Um, and people thinking that it was more like a hobby rather than a business. So yeah. you just have to have the numbers to to show what's happening, um, you know, you're balance sheet and your income statement, because that's the bottom, that's the deal. But I think being female, being, um, I'm from Ohio and North Carolina, I'm like really down to earth, I'm very earnest, that's helped me, because people know I'm not I'm not telling a lie, and I really believe in what I'm doing, and um, lots of follow-up. But I think if you're starting a business, keep it really simple, and experiment, and it's basically the money in and the money out you know it just needs to make sense on a very basic level
0: yeah my father-in-law always says the kiss method keep it simple stupid and you're right Right. it it works yeah let's pause there finish our delicious snacks take a commercial break back soon a material is your business Hi, everyone. This is Mark Rako. I'm one of the hosts of Fashion Is Your Business, another great show on Mouth Media Network. If you like the podcast you're listening to, Material Is Your Business, then I bet you're going to love Fashion Is Your Business, which intersects fashion technology and innovation, and also American Fashion Podcast, which Harper's Bazaar calls for the true fashion nerd at heart. Both shows and a whole bunch of other great podcasts are all available at mouthmedianetwork.com. And when you do listen, let us know you heard about them on Material Is Your Business. Thanks a lot. And now back to the show. Welcome back to material is your business. We're here with Elizabeth Gillette, creative director and founder of Elizabeth Gillette, a New York city studio. And it is time for.
2: And now it's
0: it's remnants. remnants. That's right. Remnants fun, personal, great questions that we just want to get out at the end before it's too late. Um, And I have one, where do you go or what stories in your background give you your inspiration?
1: So I've always loved making something that I like and sharing it with others. And if you can earn, if I could earn a living doing that, that would make me really happy. And I started that practicing that possibility, that equation um, when I was about 12 and I wanted to buy candy at the store that all my friends went to. And I thought, oh, I could design like bracelets and sell them at the checkout and then I would have income to buy fun things that I want to buy like candy and cherry cokes and that's what I did I sold um bracelets that I made by hand and I used the earnings to buy raw materials and to um, reward myself and from there I did a few other similar kinds of projects where it's making things by hand bringing them to market getting paid cash in a small scale, <laughs> and having a social interaction in the process.
3: I've always admired you because you've lived in the city, in New York City, for, I, I would say, most of your life. What
1: What is it that you enjoy about the city and what keeps you here? I would say the... People that I engage with is a big part of it. I have a few friends that just came over for dinner on the 4th of July. Two of them live outside the city. And they said, you know, I really miss the kinds of individuals that are here. I'm a type A kind of alpha female. um, And I find that there's a lot of other women like myself. Um, I go to this gym in the West Village I invited three people that I don't know that I see naked at the gym to want a party I had on the 30th to celebrate my daughter's middle school graduation. And they're like, I'm like, who does that? You know, honestly. But these were females that like run their own businesses. One's an artist. One one works for the UN. They're like fierce females that are really bright. And like, I wouldn't have met them if I lived where I grew up in near Cleveland, Ohio. I mean, I'm sure, not to offend anyone, I'm sure that there's those kinds of individuals across the country, but there's a really high density. And depending on where you spend your time, you're going to meet more of them. And that is fuel, fuel, inspiration. And that's why I'm here. And that's how I like survive, honestly. How's your beautiful daughter? (laughs) So my daughter graduated from middle school um, this week terminates the last the week that I'm alone because she is in she's in um, Long Island with some friends from school for the first time I've been apart from her since she was born and my partner Tom Klinko Stein is in Taiwan doing a lecture so I'm like single but she's great thank (laughs) you for asking for
0: a few minutes (laughs) do you have any other questions just can you give us maybe, as you think about your experience and you've given some great messages to our community, any final words of inspiration, thought, message you'd like to share?
1: I don't know if this is appropriate, but I'm a breast cancer survivor. My anniversary of having my double mastectomy was yesterday. Congratulations. July 5th. Yes, Yes. congratulations. So it's my fifth year anniversary. And I would just say to all the females out there, make sure you have your mammograms. And for all the men, make sure you check your prostate. But just if there's anything strange going on with your health, like something's aching or you don't feel right, go check it out that's why we have healthcare and it's like that is your engine you know take care of it and if you do get some kind of health crisis just remember that you'll be able to overcome it and in the process you'll be changed and transformed and even better
0: That's beautiful. That's perfect. Congratulations. Thank you so much for such a great interview and all your kind of positive energy and good vibes. It really carried through. And thank you so much for the delicious food, everybody. We've been enjoying it the whole time. How can people connect with you and your business? Where do they go?
1: So, um, where can you find my products? So, I sell to a few retailers like Anthropology, and then I do private label. Anyway, Anthropology is one of my biggest retailers. And then I sell on my website, Elizabeth gillette.com and i sell to many specialty stores if you're unable to find my brand and you need to see it in person then shoot me an email at info at elizabethgillette.com or send me a message on instagram and i will hook you up Perfect. Thank you so much, Elizabeth.
0: And thank you guys for listening. And for Samantha Cortez. Adios. I'm Stephanie Benedetto. Go change the world, everyone. Thanks for listening. Back soon on Material Is Your Business.
2: This has been Material Is Your Business. To suggest guests or content for the show or to become a sponsor, email us at podcast at Keep up with the show on social media at Material Biz Show. That's Material B-I-Z Show. Episodes available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, along with our website, materialisyourbusiness.com, produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2017, all rights reserved. No portion of the episode may be distributed or published without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening.